Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining me for Season 3 of Uncommentary. This is your host for the entire season. My name is Marty Duran. Thanks for joining. Big shout out to my Patreons, my patrons, I suppose, at Patreon. And if you would like to be a supporter, or if you would just consider being a supporter, head on over to patreon.com slash uncommentary and do it right now. Hit pause, jump on over there, and make a commitment for a minuscule 2 or 3 or 4 or $5 a month. will cost you almost nothing. will be a tremendous help to me uh, in paying for audio work and scheduling and just some little bitty things that help make Uncommentary the uh, growing and good and hopefully even better this season podcast than it has been. Uh, if you'd like to give a one-time gift, head over to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and you'll be able to make a one-time gift via your debit or credit card and uh, that would also be greatly greatly appreciated now for this week's episode my guest today on uncommentary is kb hoyle a multiple award-winning young adult author public speaker and a creative writing instructor she's represented for her work by ben grange of the l perkins agency in new york city in addition to her series, The Gateway Chronicles and The Breeder Cycle, she's a staff writer at Christ and Pop Culture, where she does a phenomenal job and has contributed to a variety of online publications. In 2013, she was a featured panelist at the Sydney Writers Festival in Sydney, Australia. She stays busy at home in Alabama with her husband and their four sons when she's not busy creating fantastical worlds for young adults to read about. KB Hoyle, welcome to Uncommentary. Thanks for having me. How is the weather in Alabama? The weather in Alabama has turned arid, which is very unusual. We have had almost no rain this summer. And are you talking about like low humidity arid? Well, you know, I, I suppose I shouldn't say it like that. We're joking we're living like in a desert this summer because it's just been drought, but it's still pretty humid. Wow, like that. so that's miserable. Yeah, <laughs> that is that deep south summer. August, hey, but August yeah. is coming. So guess what? No relief is coming. No relief. Exactly. Usually, you know, usually all summer long, we have these pop up storms and you can count on a little bit of rain every day. And usually that happens in August as well. But we'll see. I don't know. I wow. don't have a lot of here. That's crazy because in Nashville, we have had like we'll have a week of no rain or something. And then we'll just get a monsoon that lasts for mm -hmm. two days and then it won't rain for a week and then a bunch of rain. So uh, odd. So you're, I want to tell everybody who's listening how I came to know about you. And then I want you to tell everybody who you are and what you do. Okay. And then we'll roll. Um, so you're an author and you've written a lot of books and they've run, they've won some awards and uh, you're doing it. You're doing some good work, but I've never read any of them, but I have read a really cool article that you wrote last year for Christ and pop culture where uh, you you wrote a take on It's a Wonderful Life that not only had I never considered before or read before, I've never, I'd never even heard anybody talk about that movie in the way that you framed the discussion uh, about George Bailey's personal virtue serving as a dam against the iniquity uh, that would have swept away Bed Bedford Falls. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I've heard everybody talk about how angels are you know, not really like Clarence. Uh, and yeah. how, you know, personal sacrifice is important and you never know what, you know, setting your setting aside your dreams is that kind of thing, but never to the extent that you talked about it. Um, so how did you come to see 
that in that movie? Um, you know, a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, I taught for 10 years at a classical school, the classical Christian school. Okay. And so, you know, being able to see sort of classical, you know, see things with this, you know, kind of juxtaposing um, the the classical elements in with um, the movie there, um, the, the Roman story and, and seeing this idea of this sort of classical heroism mm-hmm. with George Bailey standing at the bridge there. Um, so putting the two together there, um, uh, was, was pretty, I don't know, it, it just, it just flashed before my eyes and, um, that was, that was just easy. I always tell people, I just write what I see. Oh, good. Um, yeah. you know, cause I, I often, people often say, well, how'd you see this or that in a movie? Um, I've always been deeply intuitive about movies. I mean, going back to, um, my childhood, I was always able to kind of walk out of a movie theater and say, wow, that's, I knew exactly what the, the director was trying to tell us. Whereas people were like, wow, that was such a cool movie. You See, know, you've, descri- you've described me on the second part. It's like, hey, what'd you think of that movie? Oh, that explosion was pretty cool. I wonder how long it took right. to set that up, you know? And explosions are cool. You know, I, I, love, <laughs> I love a good action movie. But for me, I'm always able to kind of see beneath the surface, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that, that deep intuition. And, um, you know, from a personal perspective, we were, um, we, we had just kind of gone through, I'm not going to go into details, but like we, we had just kind of gone through a disappointment. And we sat down, a big disappointment, and we sat down and we watched It's a Wonderful Life. And it was the first time that I had seen the movie um, as a parent. Mm. Um, you know, I had all my children um, in the last 12 years. I have four, four sons. And um, I was just, I was in a mood. I was, I was really depressed. And... Um, feeling kind of helpless and hopeless, uh, kind of like, you know, what am I even doing in life? And uh, I, we sat down and we watched it, and I just sat there and just kind of sobbed through the movie because, mm. you know, you, we all are kind of obsessed, and especially with, with me, you know, like being a writer, I want to do big things. I want to change the world with my art, and most writers will never do that. Yeah. You know, most of our work will die in obscurity. You know, that is and the sad truth. It's just the reality. It's the yeah. sad truth, right? Um, and especially being a creative writer, being a creative writer, most of our work will will be read by just a few, and and it'll it'll just it'll die in obscurity. And um, I sat and I watched this, and I thought, you know, what really is the call on my life? What what really is God's call on any of our lives? Mm-hmm. Is, is not to do these big things, but is to do the small faithful things, is the small virtuous things, is to be um, the person on the bridge standing against the great, you know, tides of evil. And as I watched, well, and that small virtuous things, mm-hmm. the, you know, all the small little virtuous steps that we do that we think, and that make us feel hopeless <clears throat> in the moment that we can't see, you know, and and then, and I kind of came to realize said, man, the way this movie is always framed is just incorrect. Yeah. Or 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 is 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 kind of correct. So it's not like there's one correct way to interpret it. You know, any story really. But I thought this this movie and and and, and taking him around as Clarence takes him around and shows him is you know all the various things that could have happened. You know, all the ways that I'd seen the movie as a child and it been, and it had been explained to me. I thought this there's so much more to this story i want to read a uh, a paragraph this is I, I guess this is in the second half maybe even close to the end 
Okay. Uh, you say, what does costly virtue look like? Costly virtue sometimes does look like brokenness. And when we practice virtue, we might find ourselves as George weeping at a bar. In practicing costly virtue, we imitate Christ, who was no stranger to giving all he had in service to others, to giving all he had not just to hold back evil, but to defeat it. And when we find ourselves broken because of the cost of our virtue, that is also an imitation of Christ, who wept and sweated blood in a garden. It probably won't look like actually giving up our lives, not for most of us in the West, but George Bailey gives us a good picture of what, might, uh, of what it might look like for the average struggling person. Giving that last dollar when we need it for ourselves, forgoing that vacation we've saved every last penny for, sacrificing our lifelong dreams. The world says we're nothing if we don't live for ourselves, but God says we must die to ourselves in order to live. Like George Bailey, we may never leave our Bedford Falls, but if we're not willing to give of ourselves for the communities in which God has placed us, what will be the cost of the absence of our virtue? And when I read that, and I read it again today, <laughs> just this morning, um, I think about the, the scripture from Jeremiah that is really uh, risen to prominence in, in recent years where God tells the children of Israel to basically to plant yourselves in the city and do what is good for the city. And I see a direct correlation there to what you're drawing out, that it wasn't George Bailey's virtue for its own sake, although certainly that's important, as you've noted, but it's what the absence of his virtue would have meant for the community in which he himself lived. And the application there to the average Christian living in Bedford Falls or Montevallo or Hermitage, where I live, uh, it seems like it's just endless. There's there's no end to what God can do with the average person who's just willing to say, God, here I am. Use me as you will. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, and this it's a message that runs countercultural yeah. to everything. Countercultural to what many of us um, get, like for... Kind of cultural is what many people get in their churches even these days. Yeah. Um, we picked up and switched churches um, in the midst of um, everything that's gone on in the world since 2016 here in our country, I guess I should say. Yeah. Um, and we, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to be like, oh, look how virtuous we are. It was a very difficult decision. Um, we decided, I mean, being outside of Birmingham, mm-hmm. Alabama, which is, you know, um, culturally, you know, we have, we have some history in this city, um, some, some deep, dark, dirty history that is not dealt with. And, um, people like to pretend that it's been resolved in this city, you know, all, all the civil rights issues. Um, there's a lot of white people in Birmingham that like to pretend that everything has, is just fixed and it's not. Um, and so we decided to pick up, um, and and start going to um, a downtown church mm. with a pastor who has a vision for exactly what you just said. Mm. Um, and that's much more in line with what I saw because I'm not going to pretend that this is my message. it's it's not it's not my message. you know i was I was watching this movie and I realized that this this movie is essentially a sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that you know we we were going to, um, a church that was not a bad church. I'm not trying to say it was a bad church, but it was a church that was, it was, for, it was very prosperous and um, very, very white in the midst of a city that's not, yeah. that's very diverse. And so we wanted to go and do more 
plan ourselves in the city, basically, um, and and just try to be more a part of this idea that um, there's a lot that we can do to be the hands and feet, basically, um, cool. especially in these very troubled times. Now you're so. not uh, you're not from Alabama. You told me uh, before we started recording that you and your you and your husband are from a different part of the country. So uh, why don't you give us a little back, background about KB Hoyle? <laughs> yes, we are from uh, the Midwest. Um, my husband grew up in Minnesota all his entire life, and I just moved all over the Midwest. I was from uh, Chicago mainly, okay. um, but we ended up just in a roundabout way down here. And um, like I said, we have four sons, so we're raising a large family down here in, um, in Alabama. And we're when the old days, it'd be like you're, you're raising all your farm hands in the old days. <laughs> so you got to right. like, get a garden going. Um, so how did you want, did you major in writing or creative writing or English or something like that in college? I did not. I thought that, um, I was too good to need any sort of, I thought I was, I was naturally talented oh, at writing, okay. let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, that this was a gift that had been given to me and you can't teach writing. You can't teach creativity. So let's just, uh, <laughs> Who needs that? And so I, I majored in history. Hey, Stephen King's um, on the phone. He wants to have a word with you. I know. I know. Um, I was a real, I was a real snot um, <laughs> in my younger years. And uh, maybe I still am. I don't know. But I've, I've at least learned that um, you, writing is like any other talent, that you may be born with it, but you obviously need instruction and you need to practice and you need to grow. And, um, you know, I was... I've taught creative writing for years and years now, and I always tell my students, I said, you you know, unless you're born a savant, you know, unless you're yeah. a Mozart writing symphonies at age three, you have to have instruction, and writers are very, very resistant to instruction. Um, I think of all, I mean, this is my personal theory, but I think of all the people who are talented in the arts, of all the arts, I think writers are the most resistant to instruction. They just don't believe that they need it. Is it too so, is it too personal? Now <laughs> this is the second half of our conversation already. Is it too personal? Is that the issue? I think part of it is very personal because you know uh, we we have our stories to tell. We have you know writers have this 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 notion that all the stories come out of me and the, the words come out of me. And especially mm. today, um, there's this um, this 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 push to you know speak your truth and stuff like that. And um, that so yeah. I, I, I don't, and, and writers are very, um, you can always tell who the writers are. Like, again, having been a classroom teacher for 10 years, I always know who the writers are in class mm. because they're always hunched over <laughs> their desk. <laughs> like, the little gargoyles, and I know they're not taking notes. They are <laughs> writing their stories because that's what I used to do in class. Um, and they give you real dirty looks when you tell them to put their notebook away and oh, start you know, awesome. taking notes and stuff like that. They have a very specific personality, and they oh don't like gosh. to be very. They're writers are fiercely independent people. That's funny. So I discovered you on Christ in Pop Culture, but it turns out that you've actually written a bunch of books. Who knew? Well, I knew when I went to Amazon to try to find <laughs> out more about you. Yeah. Uh, so you've won some awards. Uh, so talk some about what it is you write, uh, wh why you're in the genre you're in. Wh well, you know what launched that interest and. You know, if you've got some, uh, you know, 500 copy, you know, book that you wrote that you sold out of the trunk of your car, like John Grisham did with the time <laughs> to kill that we need to be looking for. 
Oh, yeah. Well, and this is, okay, this is a very long conversation, so let me see how much I can condense it here. Because um, I've had a very, because, and partially because I was so resistant to instruction, I've had a very roundabout um, journey of publication here. Um, my, um, I've always been interested in fantasy literature um, from a young age, and that was, you know, birthed out of reading um, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. You know, I was, I was, I was nursed on C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. and Tolkien, and um, my... Uh, so that's, I've been writing, I've been writing fantasy since I was a child. Um, and, but I didn't go into any sort of, um, you know, creative writing program or anything of that sort. I I got a history degree and then I got married in college and then graduated and was almost immediately pregnant and had to get a job, had to make some money. Mm -hmm. So started teaching. So when I started, um, but I always wanted to write, I always knew I wanted to be an author. And so I, I thought this was just something that would just, if I wrote a book, like, you know, like if they build it, if I build it, they will come sort of, you know, personality. Yeah. Like if I wrote a book, obviously it'll just get published. Obviously. Right? Easy. Easy. A million copies. So easy. So, um, when I went through my initial, um, rejections of the first really terrible book that I wrote, which <laughs> is not published and will never be published. <laughs> um, I had to, and I went through a terrible rejection, um, process with a manuscript, um, evaluation service. I had to, I had to realize that I, I had to learn how to write. And so, um, and actually learn how to storytell because, you know, storytelling and writing are two different disciplines. Yeah. So while I was teaching, while I was a classical history teacher, I had to go through the process of, of instructing myself how to write because we were, you know, there was no going back to school at that point with a child. We were desperately poor. Um, we had just moved to Alabama. It was, it was just that time. And so when I realized that I really needed to do the thing, I applied a, I was teaching classically, so I applied a classical methodology to teaching myself how to be a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, because I could naturally write well. It was really the art of story craft that I didn't know. Um, so, and I'm already going way too long on this. Basically, I went, you know, a much, of, much, much of classical methodology is an art of imitation. And so I went and I studied the authors that I had always loved, and I started to pull apart their books on a molecular level to yeah. see what made them yeah. tick. So okay. Take them apart and see okay. what makes them tick. And that's, um, I could I could go into that, that'd be a tangent. So from there, I went on to write um, The Gateway Chronicles, which is my sixth book fantasy series. And um, I'm still in the middle of writing my dystopian series, which is, um, it's going to be four books there. Um, but I did get an agent in um, 2016, 2017, sorry. And have some other um, uh, yet as yet unpublished published manuscripts that uh, he's working on, and we're working on trying to get a bigger book deal with those. So very cool. Uh, yeah. So are you gonna? So you say you're writing a four volume series. So you're not releasing them like one book at a time. Well, I am. What happened with that is I was with an, I was with an independent press um, okay. out of Australia for five years, and then they went out of business. So oh. I had to get the rights books back and then last year I slowly began to not slowly I actually did it rather fast re-released all of those books on my own okay. um, because my agent told me that uh, you know either I re-release them on my own or we would have to wait until I got a bigger book deal and then see if the bigger publisher would be interested in re-releasing those and it could take years and years and years and years and years well my income relies on selling books right. because I'm no longer teaching so I you know I needed to, I need to have some income. So I just went ahead and, and re-released them on my own. And they're kind of, you know, being a Christian, 
but not a Christian author, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. These books, they fall in that category of, you know, they're, they're Narnia-ish, but, mm-hmm. but they're not Christian fantasy. But, they're, but if, you, if you're astute, you can tell that I'm a Christian yeah. from reading them. Yeah. But they, I really honestly think these books would be homeless. Like, I don't think, I think they're too Christian for the secular world, and they're not Christian enough for the Christian publishing industry. Yeah. I'm talking to KB Hoyle, and we'll be back right after this. If you'd like to place an ad on an episode of Uncommentary, please email Marty Duren, M-A-R-T-Y-D-U-R-E-N, no dashes, dots, or underscores, at yahoo.com, Marty Duren at yahoo.com. I'll be glad to email you a rate sheet, and we can talk about a 15-second, 30-second, or 60-second ad on an upcoming episode of Uncommentary. Let me know, and we will work it out. Now back to this week's episode. Uh, so we're back with KB Hoyle an author, uh, Alabama resident, though not Alabama native. Uh, and she works in the, uh, is it young adult fiction? Is that what it's officially called? Young adult fiction. Yes. Young adult fiction. So if you read, uh, the hunger games or, uh, some of those others, I can't even, the golden compass, I guess you're, you'd be actually opposite, uh, worldview wise of the golden compass. Yeah. Pretty opposite that. I, a, a lot of people who enjoy Harry Potter though, when they turn around and they read, um, my gateway Chronicles series, they say it scratches the same itch as the oh, Harry cool. Potter. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, I read one Harry Potter book, so uh, bully for me. <laughs> Just one. <laughs> Just one. Yeah, I read the, that one. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so let's talk about writing. Everybody has a different style, I guess. Everybody uh, may go about the craft uh, differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you can read any number of books. Uh, Stephen King has a book on writing. William Zinsser has a book on writing. Um, there, there's a ton of books about writing, but every writer probably goes about it a little bit differently. Um, yes. what's your particular trade craft? My particular trade craft. And I always joke about this because people email me and ask me how, how do you do it? Give me pointers and tips. And I always joke and say, one of these days, I just need to write my own book about it because yeah. it's hard for me to kind of distill it into a simple answer, which is what people want. They want a simple answer. And, um, when I think back to how I taught myself how to do story craft, um, the fact of the matter is I was really just standing on the shoulders of, of giants. And, um, because as I always tell my creative writing students, you, you will never tell a new story. There, there is no new story to tell. Um, however, you can't help but tell an original story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people kind of look at me, you know, slant eyed, like, what do you, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, listen, because you are you and you are an, an individual, you will tell your own story. So don't have to worry about that. But on the other hand, every story structure out there has already been yeah. has already been done. And so when you get down to the, the craft of, of writing well, I would say it's like an athlete who uh, wants to figure out how to be the best in their in their. Um, I shouldn't talk sports because I don't know sports. But, you know. <laughs> it's like the athlete who wants to be the best at their sports the ball best. thing. Their sports ball thing, right? <laughs> You're going to study um, the, the the masters, right? You're going to study the, the the very best person at at throwing the ball, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it makes sense. Okay? That's right. That's um, right. You just get on that basketball court and you just throw that ball. <laughs> But the best, but and usually, I mean, we always get some giggles out of it because I don't really know what I'm talking about. But I do. I mean, like I've seen movies about sports ball. That's like right. they 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 watch films of of previous you know games and yes. and, and you 
you study the masters. That's what yes, you do. Stay and right writer, there. Stay right there in that lane. <laughs> <laughs> as a writer, that's what you should do too. And so when I, when I determined, okay, I really need to figure out how to do this. I didn't like sit down with a blank piece of paper and be like, okay, think real hard. You have the genius within you. Clearly, if you just think real hard, it'll come to the surface. You know, that's not the way it works. Um, you're going to fail repeatedly if that's how you approach, um, you know, trying to become a master of anything, not yeah. just writing a book, but being a musician or an artist or what have you. Um, the, to become the best, you study those who you consider to be the best and who the world considers to be the best. So who did you study? Um, I studied C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, and J.K. Rowling specifically. And then when I started to get into them, and I read some some other works on them, but I studied them specifically because, you know, um, there's this, the whole principle being, you know, kind of study the primary works, right? right? right Before yeah. you read other things about them, actually sit down and study them themselves. Um, and then I kind of went further up and further in. When you start to look at, like, for example, when you start to look at Harry Potter, because Harry Potter tends to be... Um, very um, applicable to, you know, a lot of people have read Harry Potter. So mm-hmm. when you read Harry Potter and you start to study how J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter, then you realize, well, she didn't invent the structure of story, you know, for Harry Potter. It's not like she was some genius person who came <laughs> up with all this on her own. Now, she was very smart, but she also was standing on the shoulders of, you know, other literary gi- giants. So who did she study? And so then you go further up and further and you realize, oh, she patterned, you know, this story structure after Jane Austen's work. Well, I love Jane Austen, so that was easy. Then I went on and studied Jane Austen. Oh, and she studied, she patterned this after Shakespeare. Well, of course. So then you go and you study Shakespeare. Oh, and Shakespeare was doing this because the Iliad and the Odyssey are patterned this way. And so then you go back and you study the Iliad and the Odyssey. And so when you look and you, you start to break things down, and you realize that they're, like, for example, I, I came across a story, um, a story structure known as well, what I call, because I learned it from, um, and, I, and I was, again, doing some other research, um, I met a guy named John Granger, and he calls this story structure um, ring composition, but in the ancient world, it was called chiastic or chiasmic structure, mm-hmm. which is used has been used since the beginning of story time. It's in poems and in books of the Bible. It's, it was used in the Iliad and the Odyssey. You can find it in things like Beowulf. I mean, it's all over, and you realize that there is a reason why certain stories, you know, are considered classics, why certain stories endure while other ones fade away. Because again, there's no new story under the sun, not really. And some stories tell, say basically the same thing. So why do certain ones endure while other ones fade away when they're essentially the same story? And when you break them down, you realize, well, some of them are, are structured a certain way and others are not. And so my theory, you know, began to be, well, if the bones of the story are good, then they, and it's kind of a weak way to say that, but you know, that, that the classics, the classics that really endure are classics for a reason. It usually has to do with the craft of the story, mm-hmm. which subliminally draws readers, you know, to those stories because of, of, of certain longings we have within us and our longing for pattern. I always tell my creative writing students like, over and over and over until they can't forget it, that randomness is the death of a story. We are people who are designed for, for patterns and for, for, for logic and for reason, and, and we do not like randomness. Okay, so and, I want to ask you a question there. 
I just finished uh, reading, uh, and I, th- I think I may have mentioned this in the previous interview that I did, so this is going to sound weird when the, the episodes drop, <laughs> but I just finished reading uh, John Grisham's last, I guess it's his last book, it's called The Reckoning, I know it's got a 2018 uh, copyright date in it. And the last couple of John Grisham books that I have read, uh, and I haven't read them all, and I had I had not read a bunch of them for a long time, um, short, simple sentences, they're not complex. You don't find a lot of dependent clauses at the beginning of John Grisham's sentences. They're very direct. Uh-huh. But his stories are so easily traceable, and the sentences always are propelling the story. There's very little wasted ammunition in a John Grisham mm-hmm. novel. And so even when he, you know, the one I just read had a, had a current scene, at least for the book, it was current. It took place in the forties, but it was a current scene. Then it had a previous, the middle section of the book was like a, a historical scene in relation to the first part and then back to the current. Uh, but there was nothing in the book that you felt like, oh, well, he, he lost his own attention here. You know, he's, he's writing yeah. about something and wasn't even paying attention to what he was writing. Everything served in focus to the larger narrative. And, yeah. of course, John Grisham sells a bazillion books. Right. But John Grisham's works are not considered classics. No. Well, not not now. It's hard. It's hard to label a book classic until. But it's not. Until, but it's not even you know. classical. It's not even classical like. Um, you know, I've right. picked. I picked up uh, of Human Bondage, which I just happen to have a dilapidated, falling apart copy right here beside my desk. And it's not written that way. It has flowing sentences with lots of commas and semicolons, and you know, mm-hmm. looping back around and this kind of thing. It's totally different. So. Why that difference? Uh, it, I think Grisham actually, I think his work actually falls into what you're talking about, but it's not considered classic in the sense that the Lord of the Rings is considered classic. Sure. Well, you're what you're talking. Now I'll admit I've never read a Grisham novel. Now I've seen movies that are based off of his stories, but that's not the same because movies the stories get chopped not up. Even, and not even close. Yeah, especially with them. Yeah. So I don't know off based off of experience of reading them but but you can have oh first of all you can have a story that's based off of classical you know story structures without it you know being a classic Mm -hmm. or anything like that obviously um and just because you have followed certain patterns i'm I'm saying something that it's obvious i don't know i'm not trying to like insult your intelligence or anything like that you can't insult my intelligence Just, just because you, you write a story that, that is based off of these structures and you learn how to do it and you write it, you write your stories that way, is obviously no guarantee, first of all, that anybody's actually going to read it right. or that it's going to endure. Sure. But as I tell my, my creative writing students, it's, that's not what it's about. What it's about is telling, is, is telling a good story well, doing everything with excellence, which is, is something that you should be you know striving to do. But coming back to... Um, his work, what it sounds to me like, I mean, obviously he's changing his writing style around. Um, so that's the difference between writing and storycraft. Sounds to me like what you're saying is his storycraft is, is remaining the same. The storytelling is remaining the same, but he's changing his writing style. In this particular um, book, I would say, book yeah, book. yeah. Mm-hmm. From book to book. So um, when people come to a particular author's work, though, they know, they, they return, people return to a particular author's work because they know what to expect. That's a great point. And yeah, they're going back to the author because they they want a particular thing. That's especially true of romance writers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that you know, 
Um, they're craving a certain thing, and that's that's what they want, and they want to go there, and they want to get that. Um, and it's in the crap. It's in it's in the story crap. The the ebb and the flow of the story. It really does not have to do with the style of with sentence structure and the style of the writing. Interesting. Uh, I think Karen Swall Pryor said that literature uh, focuses on development of the character, while modern uh, novels—and I'll just say that she may not have used that term—most a lot of modern writing that's popular focuses on the narrative. Does that does that resonate with you, or do you have a different feel for that? Oh, I don't know if I can. I'm not going to contradict Karen. She's oh, great. absolutely, you um, can. <laughs> we're we're friends, though. I don't know that I can. Um... <laughs> I'm 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 name dropping here. I'm slow dropping. And she's right. and she's probably going to hear this, or she might if she hears <laughs> if she hears this, she's probably going to say, Marty, I didn't even say that. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not contradicting her. Um, not at all. Uh-oh. Um, Karen, I'm not contradicting you. Um, the okay. Here's what I will. No, I think she's. I think she's right. Um, oh, safe face. For the most part. For the most part. Um, I do think. Um, that's a, a, a key distinguishing factor between what makes a book cross over into being truly literature, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, there's, I think that there's, I think within that sentence, though, there's a lot of room for discussion, though, because a lot of people, and I'm not, acu- I'm not accusing her of this at all, um, um, I think a lot of people use that, that sort of sentiment mm-hmm to write off, um, like things like young adult literature though. Um, it, and, and, and modern literature in general. So basically to say, um, oh, everything, you know, that's, that's been written recently is, is just commercial. Um, and is isn't worth our time. And, um, well, Dickens wrote commercially. Yes. Um, yeah. you know, Kenneth Robeson with all those Doc Savage stories, which are hardly considered literature, but he wrote commercially. I mean, those things ran like magazines and they bound them and sold them as books and he wrote for a living. That's what he did. Nothing yes. wrong with that. And, uh, you know, bringing up Dickens, Dickens wrote using one of the methods that, um, I stu- I studied actually, and have, have found to be something that, that he, he wrote using a method called, um, literary alchemy that Shakespeare used that, um, that J.K. Rowling used in Harry Potter, um, and it's a method that I've studied and used in my own writing as well. And and, and nobody would accuse Dickens of of well, okay, there are people out there that hate Dickens, as as my friend um, Gina would has has pointed out. But um, <laughs> there, she's she's a she's a Dick, Dickensian. But um, the uh, it, t- what you need is time and space frequently to take a look back at some of these these works. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you don't have to like everybody for them to have lasting value. I mean, I don't know that I'm going to sit down and read A Tale of Two Cities tomorrow, but that doesn't mean it's not a great book just because I didn't read it. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, KB, what, tell me the name of your series that's currently available and the, the name of the first book in that series. So when people want to go, and I actually am going to go buy the first book in the series and read it, and then I'll let you know how awesome it is. <laughs> well, no, yeah, no, no pressure on me, right? You're like, wow, this is really awful. What were you talking about? <laughs> no, the the fantasy series is the Gateway Chronicles, and the first book is called The Six. And you wrote a book called, uh, is it Breeders? Was that earlier? 
The dystopian series I started after I finished The Gateway Chronicles, and that is The Breeder Cycle. And the first two books of, the, of that series is available. Uh, the first two are Breeder and Criminal. And the, the, it's going to be a trilogy, so the, the final book is coming out by the end of this year. And then there's going to be a prequel novel that will be out by the end of this year as well. Oh, cool. And when did Breeder uh, come out? That's a little bit tricky. Breeder and, um, initially came out, oh, golly, let me think. I'm having a hard time. I, 2015, I believe, or very, right at the end of 2014, um, when I was with a publisher. I was with an Australian publisher, and then they ended up um, closing their doors. And so I, I um, had to get all my rights to my books back from them. So I've just re-released uh, both uh, Breeder and Criminal just in the past few months here. Because when I was on your website uh, earlier today and I was reading some of the accolades uh, that are there, there was a really brief description of uh, kind of the, the plot summary of Breeder. And Dog, if uh, part of it didn't sound suspiciously like a really, really popular series on Netflix that's in its third season uh, that what, didn't start until... Uh, that would be Stranger Things because one oh. of the uh, one of the characters is a number instead of a name. Oh, yeah, that. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> that wasn't. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. no. Yeah. They, they, you, you preceded Stranger Things. You beat I them to the did. punch. Yes, I did. Actually, after when I when I had just released Breeder, um, people were reading it um, and kept telling me um, that it sounded an awful that it was. Um, that it, it sounded an awful lot like The Giver and that it sounded an awful lot like Brave New World. And I had never read, um, to my shame, I had never read either of those yeah, books. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I better sit down and, and read these books. So I, God, I was having this moment of panic, like, how close is the yeah, story? Yeah. Did, you know, are people going to accuse me of, of plagiarizing these ideas? Because, you know, you have this, there's no new story under the sun. Right? I was having kind of a panic moment. So I sat down in the months after I first released it and I, I read The Giver and then I read um, Brave New World. And it, it's not too close at all, but it's thematically, yeah. thematically very similar. Yeah. You could say, hey, look, I didn't copy these people. I'm warped on my own. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> I just had the same brilliant idea. But it was, um, yeah, thematically very similar. So if, if, if you enjoy The Giver or Brave New World, and actually after I read, I was really happy to kind of be forced into reading those, those two books because they've become... Uh, two of my favorite um, books, especially Brave New World. I can't believe I had never read it before. It's yeah. now one of my favorite books ever. Um, but yeah, if you enjoy those those books um, thematically, it deals with the same material, but in a young adult. Um, it's actually more new adult. The characters are 18, 19, early 20s yeah. uh, sort of package. Very yeah. cool. So your website is kbhoyle.com. Uh, are you yep. on other me social media or Twitter or anything? I'm everywhere. Spend everywhere. way too much time on Twitter because that's where writers hang out. Um, yeah. I am on Instagram um, and on Twitter. It's just, you know, KB Hoyle underscore author. Very interesting. <laughs> um, I'm, it's that, it's that <laughs> creative Instagram. writing coming out. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm like scared to change my usernames because I'm not very tech savvy in yeah. that regard. I'm afraid I'm going to change it. It's just going to ruin everything. So I just leave. <laughs> um I am. Uh, I'm on Instagram, author. I'm on LinkedIn, but who uses that? It's boring. I'm on. Um, 
Oh, all the places. Okay. I don't know other places. Yeah. Cool. I love Facebook, cool. obviously. Yeah. And uh, I will definitely link to your, your books in the show notes for this episode. And uh, I appreciate you being here. KB Hoyle, thanks for being on Uncommentary. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Uncommentary. I really appreciate you stopping by. Big shout out to James Peach, my audio engineer, and my daughter Abby, who helps with the scheduling. If you're not yet following Uncommentary on Twitter, please do so at UncommentaryPod, or you can even follow me at Marty Duran, both on Twitter, both pretty active. If you have not rated and reviewed in iTunes or your favorite podcaster, that would be a huge encouragement and a blessing. So please do that when you get just a moment of your time. Again, if you would like to support Uncommentary via Patreon or paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and make a one-time gift there, or you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary and sign up for a monthly draft of whichever size you really want, starting at about two bucks. And that would be greatly appreciated as well. Until the next time, Sobadeo Gloria.